I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And I'm Than My Lagudu. And you're listening to Deep Cut. AR Ramen version. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss the director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view the movies as they may want us to. Welcome back, guys. This is our first episode after a brief summer hiatus, and we are returning with another edition of Deep Cut Upkeep, where we come back to directors that we've covered on the pod before who have new movies releasing this year and talk about them. And because we did a series on Money Ratnam covering both Dilse and Bombay with our friend Thamai, now, this year, now that Money Ratnam has his first part of his magnum opus released, Pony and Selvan Part 1, we have gathered again today to cover it on the podcast. Before we dive into this movie, just a quick reminder at the top of the episode to rate and review us because that helps us keep making the show. You can subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts. So it'll appear on your feeds. You can keep up with the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. And most importantly, Please join us to talk about movies and a lot more on our Discord server. We have built quite the community during our hiatus, and I feel like both of us, oh, all three of us, or actually all four of us, um, are very active <laughs> on the, the server. So if you want to come shout at us, that's where to do it. Come yell at me. Yeah. <laughs> Especially maybe after this episode. We'll see. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> we invite the discourse. We are back to discuss a new Rutnam film. And that film just came out last week and is, I think, like one of the most expensive movies made in India. Correct me if I'm wrong, Thanmai. <laughs> it's up there. Yeah. I mean, um, oh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Thanmai and uh, happy to be Welcome back, guys. Welcome back to the pod. Welcome back. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Um, much like Deep Cut is returning, I feel like I'm returning home uh, as well to discuss <laughs> films with you and discuss Money Ratnam. Um, oh, yes, beautiful. Wilson, to answer your question, it is, I think, both parts, PS1 and PS2, had a combined budget of around 500 crore, which is about $60 million. But, you know, the budget is kind of split between these two films, whereas like RRR was around the same amount of money, 550, but for only like one for film. one film. Right. That makes sense. Makes sense. I will say, I, I didn't know that the official name of this Catching Up With Directors was Deep Cut Upkeep. I fully thought you guys were running with the Keeping Up With The Deep Cut with the Dashians. Deep cut dashians. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was I mean, the name of what the episode was going to be. The joke name. Yeah. That's why I, on the episode thing, I, I saw D-Cuck, and I'm like, what is that? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I told you guys that it looks like that. And I was like, D-Cuck? I don't know what that means. I thought you just, I thought it was supposed to be D-Cut, so that's why I changed it. But. Well, I think what we should do first before we get into context is this is the first time that 
I think all four of us or all the hosts on an upkeep show have seen a film in the theaters. Like it's like a new release that we all decided to catch on the same weekend because it was opening and because it was a big deal. And also because I think personally, I have a lot of respect for Ratnam as a director after all the movies that I've seen of his and also our discussions on his masterpieces Hmm. so i was very excited to jump into a theater and catch this so i want to hear each of your experiences watching this film on the big screen and also your first like general takeaways of the film i know i talk about ratnam all the time but this was my first time i ever saw a money ratnam film on the big screen Mm. and you know and I, i saw it um i think the friday that it came out yeah the friday that it came out and it was a packed, packed crowd, packed Indian crowd, a lot of Tamil people there. And uh, I went to see it with a Tamil friend of mine. It was just a great experience because it was just like people were laughing at certain points and responding to it really well. And because like, at least when you're in a theater, right, like when you watch a film, you know, Money Ratnam film, especially, it's like it was really great to have that the rest of the audience respond to certain things where you're like, OK, like this is something that's really good and I'm responding to it too. So there's that bit of like that synergy. So I will say it was like a very special experience for me, especially because Money Ruptum is a filmmaker that I respect so much. I look up to so much that I sometimes even <laughs> try to reflect and, you know, take inspiration from in my own work and stuff, as you guys know. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and so it was just a very special experience for me seeing this, you know, in the big screen. Yeah, it was just, just a really special thing for me. That's really wonderful so happy that you were able to see uh, Ratnam on the big screen for the first time. Yeah, I didn't get to see it on IMAX, though, which which sucks, but the big screen still works, you know, I think for me. So, yeah. A couple of lucky folks here have seen this on IMAX. I definitely was going in with the wrong attitude, admittedly, of is this going to earn the cost of an IMAX ticket? (laughs) Wilson and Ben can attest I was a little fixated on this. You were so worried, Eli. You're like, it's 25 bucks. Just get AMC A-list, Eli. It was 27 bucks. They marked those prices up for the the South Indian releases way too high. Like, somebody needs to get on that shit and bring those prices down. Like, you're, like, closing out a lot of people who want to see these movies in the big screen. You know, by by marking it up that much, which ultimately harms their profit. They do the same here in, in Singapore. Yeah, as well. I paid like, a, and I quite a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, but in any case, it does earn the cost of the ticket to me. It was a pretty fun time. I enjoyed the dancing and sets and charming performances. Most of all, I think there are parts of it that I definitely have questions about in terms of. Ratnam's style and maybe even lack thereof. Thamai and I were messaging a bit about this and how Ratnam's style has maybe evolved and become a little bit more muted over time, which is to me a little bit more anonymous and maybe even, dare I say it, a little bit like marvelly in terms of its broadness. But hmm. I think that may signal that his priorities simply lie elsewhere and I want to find out what those priorities are together. It's not as confusing as I had heard it would be going in. It's not the most adventurous or risky or deep movie that I've seen from Ratnam, nowhere close. Of course, that would be Dilsay. 
And ultimately, I think it was fine. I don't say that to be dismissive, but this is a different Rottenham, I would say, from the one that we've talked about before. I had a really great theater experience watching this movie. I saw this in a packed Indian crowd. I got in in this really secret WhatsApp group where I think <laughs> it only is, like members of the South Asian community are a part of this WhatsApp group in Hong Kong. And they like and booked Wilson. out the theater and me. So I was like in this like 400 seat theater and, like, with all these families, everyone knowing each other. I'm just sitting there and the guy next <laughs> to me is like, you know what you're seeing, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> big Buddy Ratna fan. Um, and, then, and then he's like, as soon as he heard that I was a Buddy Ratna fan, he's like, oh, have you seen this one? Have you seen this one? Have you seen Telepathy? And I'm like, no, I haven't seen that yet. He's like, oh, you should watch that one. And I think just watching it in a crowd that like cheered for every character entrance that had a very like strong idea of who these characters are and the relationships between these characters like really helped me feel engaged in the film because... I think that, well, at least right now, uh, PS1 stands at the bottom of my Mani Ratnam tier list um, out of the films that I've seen. I think I agree with Eli with a lot of things about the film visually. I think that adapting a novel this huge, spanning so so much plot and also so many characters in it makes it tough to center ourselves emotionally with like one character's plight or one character's drive. And I think that's where Ratnam's filmmaking shines the best, where camera work, writing, acting is all there to like deliver like pathos for you as an audience member to get you to like side with a character when that's splintered it becomes less impactful there's an example of it splintering and it working really well in Cheka Chivanta Vanam which was the film that Mani Ratnam made preceding PS1 but I, I do think that this was a lot of table setting um, for for the finale to come next year and I'm excited to talk more about the film yeah <laughs> <laughs> Okay, my experience going to this was I watched it on opening day, but I went in the afternoon. So it was a pretty quiet theater and like I've never experienced anything like the experience that people talk about with RR or with PS1 in Singapore. And I don't think it will ever happen in our mainstream theaters, even with a fully Indian audience. I just don't see it because I think we are just brought up to be quiet people. <laughs> my experience in the theater was very strange. Like somebody three rows in front of me was on their laptop, like intermittently. It was very strange. Oh, it, was, it was weird. I was like, what are you doing? And I was like looking at them and I was like, they're not doing anything on the laptop. They're just on it. So maybe they're <laughs> skiving off work and like waiting for work messages. But anyway, Jeez. so it was a pretty strange experience, but it was like maybe like 10 people in the theater or like 10 to 15 people. So it was very quiet. So that was my theater experience. It was still a pretty like a relatively large screen, even though it was an IMAX. Yeah. So like, I mean, the film looks good. It's a good screen. And <laughs> similarly, I thought the, the production design was really good. Probably like the highlight of the film, mm -hmm. I would say for me. Agreed. Um, Especially when it comes out in the song and dance sequences. Yeah. yeah. I think my main gripe with the film is similar to both of you, uh, Eli and Wilson. And I think the only reason my numbers go lower is because I think for the film that it is, which is, and I think the intention is to make a pretty straightforward action epic. Mm -hmm. 
that narrative clarity and emotional clarity are like the most important things for that, for the kind of story that he's making. Mm. Like I have qualms of the way that some of the action is directed or like used in the film, but even that mm-hmm. is not important to me because what's more important is like, do I know what's going on and I know and know who I need to be rooting for? Or like, right. do I have somebody I want to root for? Um, mm. So I think those things are like, quite lacking in this film because of the fact that I think the story of Pony and Selvin cannot be contained in two films if you want to tell it fully. And it feels like Ratnam is trying to tell it quite fully. And when he tried to cram all that into two films, the first film became that table setting film that had to like do so much exposition so that he could get to all the climactic stuff that's going to probably come up in the second film. And I think this part really suffers for it because there's just so many things he needs to tell you. Especially if you're somebody who has like zero context of the story, which is like me. Right after I watched it, I was pretty confused about the relationships and what was going on. Then I watched like a 40-minute summary of Pony and Selvin. <laughs> so now I know the entire story. Or like most of the the beats, including stuff that's gonna probably come out in PS2, which was helpful, like to like understand what I was looking at, but it was like very strange because to understand it after the fact is like it doesn't improve the immediate mm. visceral experience of watching it. Uh, but do you think you would enjoy it more on a rewatch now that you know I don't know. Now it's hard more? to say. Yeah, because like I'm the reason I didn't watch the the summary before going in is I was hoping that it would use the surprises in its plot as part of the the filmic narrative so that it'll have that impact and it is too unclear to me for those things to have that impact i feel yeah and we can get into why what i think is unclear when we talk about the film but it's it's really those two things narrative clarity and emotional clarity like are really the things i really struggle with watching this and like trying to understand what's going on and like who who do i care about that makes sense ben we talk about the church of Ratnam. We talk about the house, the, you know, the Holy. gospel, right? What I'm seeing right now is people losing faith. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I see some people maybe one foot in the church and one foot outside. <laughs> yet, I, <laughs> yet I remain at the altar. Oh, and yes. <laughs> I remain at the altar of the house and the church of Money Ratnam because I really enjoyed this movie. Admittedly, it is a very dense film, right? I think yes. um, it is a film that, for me, works in the sense that it is paced really well and you get very intriguing filmmaking and very intriguing character moments. And I think that it is maybe too well-paced in a certain way, and I, and I can kind of get into that. Hmm. For me, I think there is just so much interesting filmmaking happening here that when I was watching this, there were some scenes and I was like, man, that is something only Money Ruttham could do. I think for me, it is not a perfect film by any means. I don't think it is, and you know, I'll, I will get into that. However, I don't see it as the middling or the abject failure that a lot of people seem to have been seeing it as. I think that one of the things with this movie is that I think it is probably the best way that he could have simplified uh, the first half of this novel in the sense that I think it is a pretty easy to follow story. I will say even the first time that I watched it, it it got a little confusing, but I think the overall structure of the film is pretty easy to follow. And Mm -hmm. we'll talk a little bit about how Vandiyathevan becomes kind of a conduit to 
the lives of the the royals in here and how uh, we get a mm-hmm. pe- peek into their lives and what kind of characters and people they are. And I think that's a great device. And, and, and I, for the most part, was pretty much on the journey for this. And I also think that Money Rutham is doing some really interesting things here with the camera. You know, going for a very contemporary look, um, going for a very digital look that I think is something that I've seen him doing with a lot of his later works, especially in Chekhovantavanam, where it seems like he's really developing a different kind of language than the type of language that we maybe expect from him or have seen from him in Bombay and they'll say. But I think overall, this is a pretty, pretty successful first part that I think it is a lot of exposition and a lot of like so many characters, but I think that we do get a, enough of each character for it to be very intriguing to me to see how mm-hmm. it all pans out at the second half, you know. And if we're going to be indulging any comparisons to the Bahubali duology, um, I think there's a much better first part to this, you know, two-part series than Bahubali part one was to that. Mm. So, yeah, I think those were my that was my general reaction to um, PS1. That makes sense. One of my favorite things about the episodes where you guessed Bamai is that I always come away with a little bit of a different understanding of the movie at hand. So I'm not straying from the church just yet. <laughs> I promise. I'm still devotee. I'm still a devotee. I'm I know. I was to... I was messing around with you guys. I was, <laughs> I was trying to rile up some emotions. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like if we were to release a Money Ratnam episode this season, like right now, this would obviously be our popular pick, and and our deep cut would would be whatever the the deep cut right. is. Ooh, interesting yeah. alternate history. We also got to think about like the the context of which this is being released. Like this is his hmm. his like big budget like mass appeal movie. This is hmm. this is it for him. Yeah. So Thamai, do you have some context for us before we get into the nitty gritty of this film? Yeah, totally. I will, uh, you know, try to do my best here and, and try to give you guys a context because there's a good amount to go through, but, you know, I'll, I'll try to make it quick. Um, so Pony and Selvan was basically, was a novel uh, written by Kalki Krishnamurthy in, in the mid-50s. Broadly, the story is about the early days of Arunmuri Varman, who was one of the real-life kings in the Chola dynasty, which was a, an empire that ruled a good chunk of South India and Sri Lanka from as early as uh, the 3rd century BCE to the 13th century, you know, like the 1200s, basically. The novel itself, though, is a work of historical fiction that combines a lot of the real-life characters and a lot of narrative uh, stuff that happened in real life with fictionalized characters and narrative choices that Kalki kind of brought to kind of make the novel. Uh, like, for example, Nandini is a character that never really existed in real life, but it was uh, a character that Kalki created. So when this novel was coming out, it was it was serialized and released weekly in uh, Kalki's magazine uh, between October 29th, 1950 to May 16th, 1954. And the total work, uh, the entire book of the novel of Pony and Selvan is 2,210 pages. Um, you put everything together, um, so uh, which is a lot. <laughs> uh, big novel, big, very big novel. And then after it was sort of serialized into these magazines, it was it was broken into five different volumes that were sold as kind of like separate 
things. And Kata today, it's regarded as one of the greatest works of Tamil literature, and uh, you know, it has a huge fan base, especially amongst the Tamil-speaking population in India. Mani Ratnam, you know, to, to kind of bring in Mani Ratnam, uh, Ratnam has always talked about Pony and Selvan as being his dream project. And he has tried to make this movie two other times in his career. Uh, the very first time he tried to make it was in 1989, uh, right after the release of Nyagan. He teamed up with uh, Kamal Hassan and uh, wrote a first draft for a single film that would try to combine about 2,210 pages. Seems very daunting to me and crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, PC Sriram, who was his DP on Nyagan, was attached to it, uh, but the film did not end up materializing because it didn't make any financial sense at the time. And then cut to 2010, uh, Mani Rotham tries to make the film again with the help of writer Jay Mohan, who's a prominent screenwriter in the Tamil film industry. At the time, Santosh Sivan was attached to the project. They had done actually a good amount of prep work. You know, they were actually about a week away from shooting when uh, suddenly the project had to be shelved because there were certain locations that they were trying to secure, but the government wouldn't let them shoot there, or some of the, mm. the temple organizations wouldn't shoot there, which then presented the difficulty to Mani Ratham that he had to build all those sets himself. And then at that point, they just thought it was too much of a financial burden on the already large, at the time, budget of the film. So he ended up scrapping it again. And then cut to 2019, January 2019, uh, Mani Ratham comes off of making Chekhov and Thavanam, which is basically like kind of a gangster film that's a loose sort of retelling of King Lear, but also kind of, you know, is in a way to like uh, a trial run for Pony and Selvan, mm. you know, and at the time it met with a lot of critical success and it was Money's biggest commercial success up to that point. At the time he approached Leica Productions, which produced, I'm going to say CCV for short, they produced CCV with him and he approached Leica and was like, uh, I want to make Pony and Selvan, you know, this is, this is, I want to make this and Leica Productions agreed to fund it. So in, a, in an interview, Ratnam says, in a lot of ways, it was the right time to make this film. We were able to do it as two parts instead of cramming it all into one part. We had so much growth with VFX and we had a budget that was bigger. Soon from there, prep work started on the film. In September 2019, Money Ratham said he would be working with veteran lyricist Vaira Muthu, who's like a very popular um, song lyricist in Tamil Nadu uh, for the Tamil film industry. Him and Rahman and, and Ratham have been working together since Roja, but this caused a lot of controversy online and in the media because there were multiple sexual misconduct and harassment allegations uh, against Vairamuthu at the time. Ratnam, upon listening to this stuff, subsequently dropped Vairamuthu from the project entirely, which is great. Thank you, King, for doing the bare minimum. Um, I think a lot of other people need to follow in your in your footsteps in that. Cut to December of 2019, principal photography began on the film. Ratnam decided to shoot both PS1 and PS2 back-to-back over the course of 150 shooting days, which Whoa. is... Pretty quick. I don't know. I think when I saw that number, worst time to make a big budget epic. (laughs) The end of 2019. Seriously, and uh, to make us what is probably I imagine is going to be like a six-hour you know film over the course of 150 days. It that feels pretty small. So I think he Mm -hmm. came in with a lot of planning and everything, and and you know it seems like he he knew what he was doing when he went in. You know, and of course with the COVID-19 pandemic, there were a lot of delays. Like I mentioned earlier, both parts were made at a combined budget of about 500 crore, which is about $60 million. For reference, uh, RRR was made at about 550 crore, which is about $67 million. Uh, And then for further reference, David O'Russell's Amsterdam was made for $80 million. So take with that information what you will. Uh, I love love how you were were able to just fit that in, Thamai. (laughs) <laughs> a, little, a little 
Amsterdam jab. <laughs> I will take any opportunity to take a slam at uh, Dor because I think he's horrible. Uh, but let's yeah, keep going. What an ass wipe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the film released on September thirtieth, twenty twenty two, to a lot of critical praise. I think people across the board seem to be really liking it. To date, you know, today is October eighth. A little more than a week, the movie has made about three hundred and forty-five crore, which is about forty-three million dollars, which is a crazy number, which is you know insane number, um, and continues to be an absolute box office juggernaut. And not to mention, this is Money Ratnam's biggest commercial success to date after a week, you know, compared to you know his other films. You know, deserved. Absolutely that deserved. Video of him smiling and celebrating with his cast and crew is so sweet and satisfying to see. It's yeah. like a teddy bear. He's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was, was really happy to see him like that because uh, I've always found him as a filmmaker who, you know, uh, as idiosyncratic as he is and uh, as uh, kind of out there as he sometimes gets, he's always kind of wanted audience acceptance at some level, mm. I think. And uh, it's great to see the audience really embrace this film and, and give it these big box office numbers. And I think give it to a film that I think that is like more interesting than a lot of other films out there. And uh, that's just great to see personally for me. And then last bit of context, uh, according to Money Ratham, PS2 is currently in post-production is slated to release next year. So we will see when that comes out. Um, I, I heard some stuff saying that it was supposed to come out in the summer of next year, but nothing's mm-hmm. confirmed. So if they could be pushing it to a little bit later, but he said 2020. We know it's 2023 based on what what they said at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've spoken about the pitfalls of comparing works of Indian cinema to American Hollywood cinema, but purely on the business side, the story of this movie does remind me a little bit of what has happened with Dune, wherein it's a totemic text from the 50s that spawned and inspired a lot of other works that have come to fruition and success in movies since then. And then it becomes a director's passion project, many attempts to make it that don't work. And Villeneuve's proof of concept would be probably Blade Runner 2049, right? Slash Arrival in the way that Ratnam's proof of Capability would have been Cheka, Chivanta, Vanam. And then they come out and they're smash successes and kind of guarantee the success of the subsequent part, both of which have yet to come out. Does that feel like mm-hmm. an apt business comparison to you, Tanmay? I would say so, definitely. Um, and I think maybe there is, maybe for some of you, a bit of a comparison in terms of how Dune also feels like a director on autopilot. I don't, I don't think that that's the case for Pony and Selvin, but maybe you guys might say that as an extension of that comparison. But in terms mm. of the business, I think that makes a lot of sense. It, it really does feel like someone's passion project. And yeah, I think that's pretty much a direct corollary. I know I was joking with you guys earlier about it being Money Rutnam's Dune, but it kind of did become Money Rutnam's Dune. So <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to quickly touch on that style point, yeah. It's if not on autopilot in either case, then a certain broadening of style in order to meet that mark of this has to appeal to a lot of people which is not Mm. a bad thing you know it just means that maybe the inventiveness is not so niche and in both cases i think there are other places to find that inventiveness yes and i also think ratnam is sort of like having to abide by the rules of historical 
epics, I think, mm. in, a, in a way, when two characters, like, talk to each other or, like, um, a character goes to meet an emperor, um, like, the scene where Vandiyatevan goes and meets the emperor and, and tries to tell him that something's up with his lineage. And like, I feel like this, the staging has to be a certain way, right? When you're, when you're meeting with someone royal. And I feel like it's, it's not quite a situation where Ratnam can like really play around with, oh, how do I show this character's relationship to this character in a really interesting way through my blocking and staging of the camera and the characters here? And, like, having to deal with a lot of extras or, like, a lot of different characters, it sort of feels like maybe it was, like, overwhelming or maybe without Santosh Sivan, there's no one there to for him to, like, bounce these ideas off of. But I do feel like there was a big difference after watching Chakachivanta Vanam that same day and then going into PS1. I feel like there was some of that like secret sauce that was lost that Ratnam does so well with his staging and his blocking. That's a great point, Wilson. And to use your point to back up my point, that scene which you mentioned when Vantiafeban goes to see the emperor and speak to him, the power relationships are not necessarily communicated through movement and blocking of the camera, but I'd say through body posture and through performance. We haven't mm -hmm. seen Van so locked in and restrained up to that point, I would say, where he's more charming in other scenes. So mm -hmm. the change in performance communicates that mood. And also, Rottenham has this great camera move that slowly reveals the emperor and where he's sitting and what his face looks like, which creates a sort of prestige or esteem around him and mm. that's what i mean when i say that there are other ways in which ratnam is communicating those ideas or perhaps finding the ways to express himself or experiment a little bit here and there though on the whole i do agree that he is in less overt a mode of experimentation yeah and when we turn to sort of adaptations of epics or literary works, right? We can even look to Ratnam's past and look at a film, something like Ravanan, where it is a total transformation of the source material, right? Right. Mm. However, with that, why Ratnam kind of needed to do that was because he had a very limited budget. He couldn't stage, he couldn't make the Ramayana, you know what I mean? Yeah. But here he's <laughs> making Pony and Selva, right? But with the money, I think that with that comes a... a and also, I think maybe Ratnam's relationship to the novel, maybe with the Ramayana, he felt like there is an interesting inversion with that, that he wanted to play with. But I think with Kalki's novel, he is so attached to it and he wants to mm -hmm. respect it. And with the budget that I think that, you know, he has kind of stuck to a very reverential way of adapting the source material mm -hmm. uh, rather than any kind of transformative way. That's not to say that I don't think he really excels with a lot of the visual stuff that he's able to come up with with uh, Ravi Varman here, who's the cinematographer. I do think that with the bigger budget, I think there's a little bit of thought of how am I, how are my producers and distributors going to get their money back? Mm -hmm. I need to sort of have the war scenes and play to a, a nostalgia of the novel, right? Or an appreciation of the novel. Because, you know, when he tried to invert the Ramayana, people didn't like it, you know? Uh, and they didn't go to see it. 
but I also think it's a little bit of his own personal relationship. I agree with you in that I think a lot of his expressivity is in the smaller things, right? In 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 the yeah. in kind of the smaller stuff. Like, for example, you know, when you see uh, Nandini for the first time, right? She's revealed to you underneath a veil, right? You see only half of her face, uh, and then you get that Rahman score, and 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 you start to see that maybe this is somebody who keeps one side of her hidden and another side present. You know, it's like these right. small things that he's able to do. And, and, and for me, I, I felt like when I was watching the film, I was really registering that, that there's these very specific things that he's doing. When we talk about style too, I think his style is, is something that's always changed, but I think mm-hmm. particularly in Pony and Selvan, the specifics of what he's after is very small. I think sometimes to the point of imperceptibility, which I don't know, you know, which which we'll go into, but but I think like I do see that, but I think that those smaller things really did work for me. But again, you know, it, this is like a big budget film that he also personally wants to honor, but also wants to make money on, right? He doesn't yeah. want to be <laughs> not have a career anymore, <laughs> yeah. you know. So it's, it's always tough. I find it interesting that you you made this comment, Eli. I think uh, about the lack of style, and like I don't really think I need to go into this and feel like this is Ratnam doing a Ratnam thing. You know what I mean? Because mm. I think style like is a toolbox. Like you imagine liking films from directors that don't have distinctive styles, but they are just using the very so-called standard cinematographic toolbox in a good way to tell the story, right? They don't have to necessarily innovate. Because usually when we talk about a director or a cinematographer's specific style, it's about something that's novel or innovative compared Mm. to their peers. But at the end of the day, everyone is using very similar tools for most things, right? Like, you only get, like, a Wes Anderson or, like, a... Like, you only get that kind of, like, very specific style from, like, very specific directors while honing a very specific look or a way of shooting. Mm. Or, like, I mean, if you look at, like, Ozu, like, that's kind of, like, the things that, like, signify those directors. But a lot of directors and cinematographers kind of work on a more... I guess you would say standard style whether that's a, a bollywood slash um populous indian cinema style or like a hollywood style right mm-hmm. the question is whether those tools are utilized well good distinction yeah and i think for the most part pony and selvan does do things pretty well like and i think and those subtle things that you mentioned that do come through and i think the general staging is good and i think the money that he's trying to show that he has spent mostly comes through Here's a big wide shot, and this is the yeah. money I spent making this set. Yeah. It's unfortunately, I think, just not the most interesting way of utilizing the camera to capture the production design and to stage some of the scenes. Like, I think a lot of things tend to feel somewhat pedestrian. They could f- be, I don't know, injected with like just a little bit more verve. Like, you have some like standout scenes, like the scene where Kundavi and Nandini meet. And then there's like this overhead crane shot on the staircase. Oh, like, yeah. Stuff like yeah. that, like hits. And like, oh, yeah. you can see that in certain scenes, he is pushing it in terms of the stylistic stuff to like amplify what is happening within the scene. And I mean, I have other reservations about stuff like that. Like that scene looks good. But then I think because of the fact that I'm confused about the emotional stakes, that even though that scene works on a theoretical level and is a good application of camera, but when it's not, for me, supported by something emotional or narratively clear, 
then it doesn't work because I don't know what I'm looking at. And I think a lot of what's going on for me is like this mismatch of like something that looks good, but I don't get why this is happening right now. So then in that moment of seeing and hearing, it doesn't mean anything. So it's like the difference between like looking at something beautiful and looking at something beautiful that makes sense. Like like the kind of the kind of thing. That makes I understand where you're coming from, Ben, but I felt like the, the clarity of that scene was in terms of what its purpose was was pretty obvious to me. Like mm. I think it's hinting at a history between these two characters that is hopefully going to be unpacked in PS2, but I think it also gives us a little bit of insight into what the royals' way of speaking is, you know? Like, they talk in kind of a muted way, right? Like, they'll, they can't directly insult you, but they'll, <laughs> there's a bit of that kind of, like, um, passive aggressiveness, you know? And yeah. I think that supports that, right? And I think it, it hints at a very intriguing relationship between these two people. And then I think that's further kind of illuminated by the scene later when Kundavai is, is meeting with Aditya Karikalan meets with him and talks about how she's one of the reasons why Adita couldn't marry Nandini, right? So I think when you see that scene and, that, and then I think about that scene between Kundavai and Nandini, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff underneath it. And, you know, and all of that is supported by the performances and the camera work. For me, it's, it's about the investment in that scene is, is the desire to unpack what that is. Because mm-hmm. it's easy for that scene not to have anything at all, Right. But it does have that extra bit of like, what what is it? What are these characters? What are their relationship? What's their relationship? And how has it gotten to this point? And they're two very smart, beautiful, intelligent women who are trying to, you know, in, in a brief period in the movie, trying to one up one another. You know, in that scene, for example, I know I'm talking about the scene in length, but I, I kind of want to talk about it. It's like it happens very quickly because I feel like Rutnam's visual economy is very quick in this film. But yeah. um but when when he when she comes in, right, one of the, the chieftains tells Nandini, don't go forward. She's, she, she has to come to us. And then Trisha notices this, right? I mean, Kundavai, she notices this. And uh, and then she, like, talks to some guy next to her, like, about some random thing. And and uh, he's like, uh, you know, when are you going to get married? Like, it doesn't really mean much, right? So there's a mm-hmm. bit of that, like, power thing happening there. Like, who mm-hmm. has power, right? And then, you know, and then eventually they kind of... You know, Nandini's forced to kind of meet in the middle, and then Kundavai sort of uh, meets her in the middle, uh, and then they have that kind of exchange of words, right? Again, another thing where I think a lot of the, maybe the briskness of the visual economy, at least for me, you know, I kind of noticed this on my second, uh, well, I forgot to mention that I watched this a second time because it was on AMC <laughs> Stubbs, so thank you AMC <laughs> Stubbs for putting that on, uh, putting it on, but I noticed this the second time that I watched this, right? But it happens so quickly, right? Uh, that it's like, that's why I, I keep saying I, I wish... Rutnam lets these scenes play out, you know, and really lets yeah. them play out longer, you know, to the point where stuff like that kind of becomes really small. But I still admire the craft of that. And I, and I think that it's very minuscule. There's a really fine attention to detail there, right? I'm also thinking about another scene, you know, there's a shot like towards the end of the film where uh, Nandini is looking at the, the Cholas who are who have been asked to capture uh, Arun Mori Varman and imprison him. There's a shot where her husband is in the front and Nandini's in the back. Nandini comes to the front. And then what ends up happening is the husband is almost like pushed to out to the to the side of the frame where mm. only you can only see half his face. And it's kind of weird because you would expect maybe a filmmaker to cut to a wider shot so that you get a more clear coverage. But Rutnam stays on that shot of him of like a really strange kind of framing. There's a very interesting way where Nandini's sort of dictating the power, the power equation is changing. 
right? And he's able to communicate that in that very small way. Yeah. And and then later in the shot too, where uh, you know, he is like nearly pushed out of the frame, right? Uh, and then he kind of and then it cuts and then it cuts back to her and then he kind of walks behind and he's off frame and then you just see Nandini. Right. So there, there's a clear kind of like visual progression happening, uh, but it's happening, I think, in a very kind of small way, you know, mm-hmm. and very minuscule way, which I don't necessarily know if and maybe, you know, this is a, something to talk about where if that is a progression of style or if that is a innovation within a certain thing that Money Rutham needs to do and complete given the budget of this film, you know? Right, right. Yeah, because I'm like, we're, we're all talking about this and I'm thinking about what what Rutnam's going to do next after the PS1 and PS2, after like conquering his dream project. Like, what type of filmmaking will he go into after this? Also, you talking about you rewatching this, Tamai, has made me think that I also would benefit from a rewatch <laughs> of this film because I just feel like... For me, a lot of the second half where you get into the what I assume is the second volume, which I am was not familiar with. I only like prepped like a f- probably half of the first volume listening to the audiobook. Thank you, Thamai, for sending the link to the audiobook. <laughs> but I think throughout the second half, I was doing a lot of catch up, like just with my mind being like, okay, this like this person's here and like what's what's like the the relationship between these two characters and i just felt like i my my brain was being overloaded with trying to like figure out where i'm supposed to be here in this moment and to like understand the relationship between these characters having a conversation or or what's going on in the plot and i wasn't able to like catch those smaller things that ratnam does so well mm-hmm. in order to just really understand emotionally what's going on or what he's trying to relay to us. And I feel like I was approaching this film trying to get so much clarity of plot. After watching it, I like list, I watched this review by Bharadwaj Rangan, who did that interview with him, where he was like saying, like, this is sort of a kaleidoscope of different scenes where every character gets their chance to showcase like through through their performance showcase their positioning and also their wants and their needs um as a character and i realized that i shouldn't have been tracking this plot so closely and more paying attention to these actors and these characters and seeing what they're doing in order to just get a more full idea of all the players in this game um and it's less about the moves that they make or yes still it's it's somewhat of the moves that they make but i feel like i was approaching watching it in a, in a different yeah maybe not in the way that Rutnam intended but i feel like even if you think about it that way if you think of it as like a first half of the season of a tv show where like each episode is just about one character kind of like style of storytelling yeah as much as you can get the vibe of every character which you can from the film i think the main thing it needs to give the audience is a sense of how everyone relates to each other which i think is the thing that it struggles with because there's just so many characters that are important because a lot of the characters are important and have key roles and you don't even know that by the end of the film that some of the characters that you saw are like key characters in the book mm. and that's like the, the the thing that 
like I really struggle with this film. Like for example, with that Kundabai and Nandini scene when they're like having a face off, that shot of them facing off is right before the conversation. But before the conversation, you don't really get a sense of their relationship. So the face off is missing its reason. You don't know why they're facing off. You just know these two women don't really vie with each other at this point. But then you understand why there's a face off and why there's tension only after the face-off, and then they talk. And I can understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to use the face-off to invigorate the scene after with tension. Yeah. So, like, the visuals mm-hmm. and the music from the face-off is supposed to, like, carry over. But I think it doesn't as work for me when I'm watching it because it's kind of like, I don't care yet about these two people. So this is not working. But if it was staged in a way where we understand how these two women don't like each other or, like, have a past with each other, and then we get a shot of them facing off and then it'll be like a oh shit things are gonna go down by that point in time it's like oh shit things are gonna go down but I don't know who the hell these two people are and it's like trying to force me to care just through image and sound which I mean I respect that approach and it can work but I think for me a lot of it doesn't work and I think it also carries through with the music and dance sequences which feel a bit tacked on in this because I don't really understand I think a lot of them are like thematically linked to what we're seeing, but they don't feel as embedded into the story or like to the emotions mm. of what's going on than I usually hope for in Indian cinema. But I know it's not necessarily always the case. But for example, there's the song where Vantiyatevan is dressed up as the devil or something. Yeah, he's dressed up as a demon. Yeah, yeah. Which is a fun number, but I'm not really sure what the point of it was because it was just like a show that everyone was watching. I'm not really understanding what the point of that scene is. And I think that's the kind of thing that's, I think, emblematic to, like, my experience. Like, I don't know what the point of this is right now. And that's, like, kind of me at every scene. I'm like, I don't really know what's the point. Only maybe near the end, then I start to put things together. Um, yeah. With the music and dance sequences, I kind of disagree with you across the board about those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're pretty well implemented in this. I think they help immerse you into the world that you're going into. I think I don't, I also don't want to be the guy that's like, it was in the book, but the, you know, like the, <laughs> but the spectacle that Vandiyathevan watches in the palace towards the beginning of the film, that's in the book. Like Kalki writes about that. And, um, you know, when that song that plays, when, um, when he's taken by the boatwoman to Lanka, Kalki describes the song. Right. And then, and I think mm-hmm. like Rahman uses those cues from the novel to, to create these songs. Mm. However, I do think I, I do think that they give you insight into the world that you're entering into because when you set up a period epic, right, there has to be a way for you to enter it and feel immersed in what you're watching, right? And, and I think for Rutland to kind of immerse you and kind of communicate this this world of the cholas to you, I think song and dance is a great way to do that and, and using the music is a great way to do that. You know, for example, I think mm. the Devaralanatam song, which is the spectacle that Bandiya Devan watches, is a really remarkable way to create a sense that something is wrong, right? Like something mm-hmm. is going to happen to the Cholas. And and when I was watching that, I, I felt a, like a sense of dread almost because, you know, we hear about the comet in the sky, right? Uh, we hear about the comet that tells us that royal blood is going to be spilled. And I think the songs are like, kind of that, especially that song is kind of an emphasis on that, right? Uh, it kind mm-hmm. of points it. And it's like, like for me, when I was watching it, it was like, it's a great song and great picturization, but I think it's, you know, we're getting into the world, but we're also kind of aware that 
something's going to happen and creating a kind of an unsettling nature, right? It, it kind of builds that in us a little bit. At least that's what, when I was watching, uh, that's what I felt. And I almost think Rutland does a really great job of actually implementing the songs without destroying the narrative flow of the film. Yeah, I agree with that. I think yeah. he does a really great job. Like, for example, even with that same sequence, like, it's not like when it even goes into the palace and the song starts. The song's already started, right? The, the performance right. has already started, right? So, and then when the even trying to get into the palace and then he gets in and then the song's almost done by the time he gets in, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then we, it kind of intercuts between the two. So I think Rutland does a really interesting, uh, does a great job of kind of not just like keeping the pace of the film brisk, but I think also like he's a director that's like kind of known for his song picturizations and like kind of yeah. letting mm-hmm. the song play out. But then he kind of breaks that, right, a little bit here, right? right. And he does that a lot in Cheka Jimantavanam, too, where there's pretty much no musical numbers at all, right? Yeah. You know, I think this is a, an interesting way where I think he's aware of maybe what the audience expects from him and he wants to do something mm. different. You know, it's always maybe a little bit of that. But I do think in the function that they serve, a part of me actually kind of wishes that they, that they sort of played out fully, you know? And I really wanted it you know, in a way that when they're integrated into the film, I think they do create a good sense of place and purpose and immersion. But I, I almost wish that we got those song picturizations, you know, that uh-huh. really, really emphasized everything, you know, and, and, and that's just me, though, personally. But I do think their place in the film, a lot of, uh, for a lot of the song sequences, it, I think it's pretty clear to me personally. You were talking about how there were no song and dance sequences in Chekhachevanta Vanam, which was... Yeah, which is true. But I think one of the things that was there and that was also in previous Rutnam films that I've seen is the songs that sort of act as interludes between scenes where there's a, like the singer that sort of explains what's going on in the plot and sort of like gives that like tonal and also plot context for us to like continue forward and use as a driving force, I'm sure that he wants to adhere to this period drama or period film aesthetic. But I think this film really would have benefited from that classic song to explain what's happening, to lead into this next scene or to sort of add as like an emotional beat at the end of a previous scene. And I think it would have helped with some narrative clarity. But I see what you're saying, Mai, about how he doesn't want the songs to disrupt the narrative flow and that they're pretty embedded within the story. Yes. The closest he gets to what Wilson is describing to me is when Adita Karikalan is describing his backstory to one of his generals, maybe his grandfather, right? I think it's his generals, one of his generals. He describes how he fell in love with Nandini and then she ran away to support in Enemy King. And then Adita kills that enemy king, forever losing Nandini's love and starting this great chip on his shoulder, which leads him into war. (laughs) This is a sequence which I have been circling back in my head a lot because it's doing a lot. And I think on its surface, it is very plainly telling you, this is my character. These are my emotions. This is where my backstory comes from. And I think at first, in my brainwashed Americanized head, I thought, this is telling me. This isn't showing me. This is very on the nose. But as I've sat with it a little bit more, I think that this is a pretty layered scene. 
and it is doing some of this character explanation and plot explanation that Ben, you're saying you find lacking in some of the other characters. So mm-hmm. I'd say that I connected to characters the most either when they were ciphers and there's a nice game of whether or not we're supposed to be with them or against them, as in the case of mm-hmm. Nandini, really wonderfully portrayed by Aishwarya Rai Bachan, who was one of the first Indian popular cinema actresses I recognized. The first movie of hers I saw being Devdas years and years ago. Yeah, it's a great movie. And her game is wonderful because she holds her cards very close to the chest. And Ratnam is supporting her with the camera, as Thunmai noted. She is appearing for the first time shrouded with half her face. Or when we're supposed to understand the character fully and their backstory is detailed, in the case of Adita Karikalan. So the characters who are in the midground, such as Princess Kundavai, who we recognize as good immediately and is totally good, and we're not supposed to question that or have conflict. I feel Ratnam telegraphing that information to me, but because I don't have as much information on her backstory or the values that she holds and cares about, I don't feel as strong a connection or intrigue about what I'm supposed to think about her. That's the case where I'm being told a little bit too much and I want more backstory. I would extend that same opinion to... Vandia Tevan as well. But I feel like Vandia Tevan acts as sort of a vessel for us as the audience. And yeah. rather than have his own cards in the game, um, he's he's just our surrogate. Yeah, Perhaps. he feels kind of like a charming everyman character that you would kind of get in like those 50s and 60s swashbucklers where, you mm-hmm. know, like it feels like maybe he, I don't know, doesn't have the biggest internal life. But, but uh, you know, I think he's a great way. He loves way to, women. He, yeah, that's true. That's he does love women. That's his eternal life. <laughs> but I think he's a great way to experience the world, and he's just Carthys just plays the character really well, um, mm. just with a lot of charm, a lot of like, yes. I don't know, old fashioned heroism uh, yes. and charm that we severely lack in Hollywood. Yep. <laughs> and I, I just think it's like, uh, he's just a great person to kind of go on the journey with. But I definitely get what you're saying, Eli, about mm-hmm. maybe if he was elaborated upon a little more. But I think yeah. that's sort of counteracted with the fact that he is a very relatable person who kind of takes us through everything. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I guess the point that I'm making more lands on the main cast of characters who are not our surrogate, where in the case of Adita Karikalan, I ultimately come around on this scene that tells me a lot about him because it gives me so much more information and points to have an emotional connection with him. Whether or not that comes through in an expository song, as Wilson's saying, I do wish that there were more space for each character to kind of have that backstory rather than telling me this person is honorable and good. Even displaying it through a scene of an act of choice as in when Arumozi Varman chooses to turn down the throne that he's offered in a neighboring kingdom... That tells me a lot about him, and he is shown as honorable and charming and winsome, but because I don't know as much about the things that formed him in his youth, 
and because there's not as much inner conflict as mm. have Adita, Karikalan, or Nandini, I'm not as attached to those characters who don't have past conflict or story ghosts, as we might call them. Right. But that is also like a reflection of the the original text. Like, I feel like in the original text, you're really like thrown into it and your understanding of these characters is all based off of what you see them, like the actions that they do. So mm. like refusing the to throne is a big reflection of Pony and Selvan's character. Backstory isn't really like explained that that thoroughly. I guess to put this even more succinctly, there are certain characters who seem to be without flaw. Mm. And that creates less intrigue for me. Yeah. I think it's interesting, like, the characters that you singled out, Eli, as being, like, less interesting, like, Vantia Devan and Kundavai, are the characters that I actually am more interested in. Mm. And, mm. like, actually the characters with story ghosts are the ones that I think really become less interesting for me because it feels like the kind of thing where it's a mystery box. Mm. And I hate that. And like, I, I, I just don't like that kind of story where it's like a, oh, what's going on here? Like, what is her secret? And I don't like that because it's kind of like, a, oh, here's the gotcha at the end here. And I know actually like with the story of Ponyan Selvan, there's actually apparently part of Kalki's storytelling is that he doesn't tell you the answer to the mystery box. So actually the mystery box is not important. And so yeah. it's the characters in which I'm like watching them do stuff that I'm more invested in. Like, Kundavai is doing these political moves. <laughs> and those are the parts which I, like, I'm more engaged in. Because, like, even when I'm confused about what is happening, her doing stuff and, like, making moves, talking to different people helps me understand what she's doing. Yeah. And, like, her game. Like, I know what she's doing. Whereas, like, mm -hmm. a character like Nandini, where, like, I know she has a secret backstory. I know that she's doing stuff. But... I mean, in, in a way, we kind of don't really get that much runtime with her. Yeah. Um, she's like, crystal what clear she's to doing. me, interestingly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> not that I don't understand her. Like, I get her archetype, in a sense. She's an archetype. You Is know? there a femme fatale? Yeah, but, like, she she has, like, secret goals and stuff. But, like, I'm like, I don't really know what what's, mm. she's doing or what's going on here. Oh, I and get it. And that's where she loses me. Whereas, like... <laughs> Sorry, I'm fully showing off. Yeah. No, if you're All turning right. on Aishwarya Rai, I have to stop you right there, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead, Ben. Go ahead, Ben. I'm not really turning on her specifically. Um, like, I'm more like... It's more of a... Like, for me, the broad problem with the film and my enjoyment of it is the packaging of what we need to know. I see. And Nandini has a lot of things that we need to know about her. So, like, how do we see how she does stuff and how she gets to where she is is important but the fact that a lot of that is backstory and ghosts you know what i mean and try and infer it through the way that ashwari looks which i mean all respect to her but like there's only so much i can understand from your face like i can understand your emotion but i need to know i think for me i need to know what are you doing what is going on there like what mm. what what is your goal i don't really enjoy the what is she trying to do kind of like game you know what i mean i, see. I just want to know like, even with Vantia Thevan, like, I understand that the this book is using him as kind of, like, the audience surrogate where he's going through the kingdom and, like, learning all these things about the different characters. I kind of wish we got more of that. That's already a big chunk of the film, but I feel like that is the kind of backbone of the narrative, where here is a man understanding what is going on, because he doesn't know what's going on politically until he starts moving between the 
different players and is introduced to them and then slowly pieces together the thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we are actually so aligned with his understanding of the narrative that I think the film could have committed more to it, which would have made it maybe stranger and possibly even more confusing. But that would have given us somebody to like, like this guy is me in the, in the story. Mm-hmm. And so I just need to understand how he's understanding everything. But because now it's like the narrative range is so broad that it's throwing everything at you at once yeah. that you have to like absorb everything at once, not as a person, but as like somebody almost like reading the book at like three times speed. Yeah. You know? So yeah. like, I think that's the struggle. I found it funny with the way that I realized in the middle of the film or like two hours in that Ponyan Salvin is like a person because I didn't <laughs> understand it. I was like, this is a person. Oh, okay. When they started to introduce him as a character and I just found it like interesting how like he's a titular character, but he gets this introduction two hours later in the film. And not that that's necessarily a problem to title your film after what to me seems like a supporting character in this part of the film. But like, if we had like a more holistic understanding of like the things that everyone knows about, like the, the myth of Pony and Salva and him being saved, all that, like being more like, I don't know, maybe just a different way of, of packaging that material to us. Yeah, I don't know mm. what the ideal way of making this film is because I can see that it is incredibly hard to adapt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, like that's really just the big question about would it be better? Could it be better? I have no idea. I'm thinking no. about format, right? Like, I feel like if this was a season of a TV show, like, like a if TV they, show, yeah. yeah, if they would um, split up the, the volumes of this book into a, into a season, it could have like you could have given the characters room to breathe at least in this first half and really gotten us like invested and understanding Mm. of these characters a little bit more because what i love about this film is that everyone even though you have weaker characterizations and stronger characterizations however you want to see it i feel like all the actors across the board are giving really good performances like i don't think Mm -hmm. there's really a weak link there yeah. yeah which i'm really astounded by because it's such mm-hmm. a it's it's a really massive cast but everyone's pulling their weight and i think everyone knows that this is a big like it's a big deal it's pony and Sylvan. like people know this story and know these characters i i just wish they were they were given more time to breathe mm-hmm. and as i was sitting there in the theater waiting for the movie to start the guy next to me was sort of like oh talking through the book with me and i was like oh so would you would you call this like similarly to like the bahubali's in its like action epicness and he was like no 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 this is closer to like game of thrones with like yes. people yeah. talking <laughs> about things and going to different places yeah. and yeah i i'm just like wow he should have Maybe it was like a money issue or maybe people don't watch enough TV in India that to for them to justify spending a lot of money on a TV show. But I would have loved to see an extended version of this on honestly seen an extended version of this. It feels like it could have had one more movie, but maybe it's a budget thing. You know what I mean? Like or it two feels more like, movies. One yeah, one movie like, for each volume. That's five. That's five. Oh, five movies. movies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Definitely I think that like I, of course, would say, like, yeah, I think it deserves, like, a season of television, right? Like, this story deserves that time and the that, that effort yeah. and care. But I think at the same time, when you committed something to television, you know, the visuals, the, that visual language goes away, you know, everything starts to change, right? You're not making it for the big screen anymore. So 
I think that for me, the ideal way I think would have been to make each volume of the book its own film and mm-hmm. also figure out interesting ways to transform the material that would still appease the audience of the people who read the original book, right? I think that would, for me at least, I think that would probably would have been the more ideal way or just like an extra movie even, I don't know, you know? <laughs> you know that. But um, I think there's a lot to to talk about there. I mean, I, I also like kind of want to talk through the, what I think is like the best sequence in the film, which is what Eli talked about, which is that pre-interval stretch with, with Vikram, and which I think is... I watched that scene and I was like, I got goosebumps. I don't know about you guys, but I was like seeing a filmmaking and a performance and a just like something. Editing. I feel like I'm editing this like access to subjectivity that, you know, we don't get in, in the rest of the film that to hmm. me, that part just explodes. Right. You know, and, and I think a lot of like, Late Rethnam, I think, you know, and, and I'm kind of basing this a little bit off of in Chekhovanthavanam too. Chekhovanthavanam is a film that, it, for the most part, it doesn't really explode all the time. It's a film that it pretty much stays constant, and then mm. it explodes suddenly, right? Yeah. Uh, with emotion, right? And then it stays kind of at a graph, you know, and then it, it explodes again. And there's a similar kind of thing here happening with that scene right first of all i fucking love vikram he is uh, an amazing actor like everyone <laughs> needs so to good. see his other films because he is like one of the most underappreciated actors in india right now and like he can do so much with his face so with his body language and watching this i was like man yeah he's a fucking great actor like why did i forget that <laughs> you know <laughs> and there's so much going on here right like like eli said there is this like it's literally a monologue like he's telling you about his backstory what he feels right and like what what nandini means to him there's a lot of really crazy stuff happening because like the first shot that you get right before he goes into the speech is this like very strange backlight shot silhouette shot mm, where yeah. you get a, you get like this shot of him but the highlights are so blown out that right. you're getting this like crazy like digital texture and you don't get a lot of access immediately right like like you don't see his face at all but you start to feel there's something underneath that right and then the next scene where uh you know he starts talking about his relationship with nandini is so shot so interestingly right like the camera is mimicking kind of his emotional turmoil, right? I guess, like, the Oscar way or the prestige way to cover a scene like this is to do, like, a slow zoom in or a dolly in or something. But Ruttam is, like, zooming in and he's, like, and the camera's moving this way and Ravi Marman is, like, focusing on weird <laughs> things. He's going out of focus and, like... Yeah. And I was just, like... Handheld. He's going on handheld and I was just, like... Like, the typical way would have been to just cover it like that. But for somehow, like, pairing this crazy, disorienting camera work, right... With, with this, like, really impassioned speech about how he feels like he's died twice and, you know, mm-hmm. what, what Nandini means to him is, I think, so, just so impactful, right? Like, uh, like, I was watching it and I was like, man, like, only fucking Money Rutham could have thought of this, you know? Like, like, <laughs> yeah. like of course, like, a real, a real master behind the camera and, you know, like, knowing when to explode like that and mm-hmm. use this crazy camera work that you don't expect from a Money Rutham film. You expect classical compositions and really beautiful staging and but you get something that's really unwieldy right and then on top of that you know like eli mentioned the the editing where the first thing you see is a door opening and closing right and that scene is sort of cut very interestingly when he's talking about 
the betrayal, right? That big, the scene of betrayal that he felt, the time that he died twice. First thing you see is him opening the door, right? And then the second time you cut back, you go to his perspective, right? And the door opens and then you see, you know, Nandini and it was so interesting watching that scene and, and maybe I'm totally off base with it, but it felt like a possession scene. Like, Ooh. it felt like somebody who was possessed. And I think it's like something that's very much filtered through subjectivity because it's very much cut, right? Uh, you see it in one way and then you see the full thing another way, right? Um, like he and, can't confront the truth of what he's done the first time recounting his story even. Right, exactly. And like, it's such an interesting thing where like, you know, he cuts the head and the camera just like stays on him and he sees like the blood but it's not heroic. I don't think that shot is heroic particularly, right? No. It's very... No. It feels like, again, like somebody who's possessed, but somebody who's like realizing what he's done and what, mm-hmm. but also so like angry. I don't know. It's just yeah. like there, there's so, so much to dig into in that scene. And to me, that is the standout stretch in the entire film. Even the implementation of the Chola Chola song. It is a song that you would think, you know, is a victorious song. It's a song that you sing after battle, right? But it's like cut right into the middle of that whole thing where you don't see a hero and his valor and his honor, right? You see a hero who is deeply broken, right? Like, you yeah. know, and, and and it's like there's a it creates a kind of dramatic kind of a kind of an irony with the type of song that they're singing. And obviously at the end they start getting into like him singing about Nandini, right? But like, especially in the beginning, it's very much like a a victorious song. It, it kind of gets into this place where you're seeing a character who's so deeply troubled, but he's singing this victorious song. And I don't know, it's just it just creates a very interesting sensation when you're mm-hmm. watching it. And there's a moment right before it cuts to intermission where there's this like backlight, but the camera is mostly totally out of focus. And then the camera kind of goes up, it catches the light, and that's when it goes into intermission. And it's just like a, I don't know, it's just like a very, very unique way to communicate what is going on in a character and also kind of subverting like what you think like a, how a victorious battle song would be implemented into a narrative like this. Another layer of the nuance of this scene that also has to do with its context within the rest of the movie is that Ben was talking about how he doesn't like that Nandini's backstory is delayed and that there's this sort of game of figuring out where her allegiances lie i personally enjoy that and the other layer of this scene with adita karikalan is that it explains nandini's motivations and backstory as well in this moment it makes everything click in this again delayed moment and it's up to you whether or not that is fun or whether that latency of information is worthwhile or constructive or interesting or fun. But to me, it carries extra emotional power into that pre-interval scene because it is explaining Aditya's motivations and wounds and it is explaining Nandini's motivations and wounds all in one fell swoop, tying them together and connecting them across space and time when they don't actually share any other scenes together, those two actors. And that that final Vikram scene that we see at the end is when he is like, I'm going to, none that he's going to pay for this. And to me, it kind of gives that scene more power too. Like it's a very brief scene at the end, 
But then it kind of brings me into PS2 where I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen when they meet? You know, know. (laughs) what's going to happen? You know, like, uh, you know, for me, it's going to be like, what's going to happen when these two like characters who are very deeply troubled meet? Yeah, it just I think it creates a lot of interesting emotion and tension leading into the second part also. Speaking of the very ending and Nandini, it feels like a very big spoiler to reveal that she is the embodiment of the river. Is that what it's saying? I don't think I that's mean, what I guess saying. I don't know. I can tell. I, I know what it is. Oh, I. Yeah, but it's like confusing. Yeah. yeah. Pony and Selvin means the son of Pony, which means the son of the river, right? Like the river. Arun Murray kind of talks about in the film where he's like, you know, this is woman that saved me. And that happens to be the woman. And that woman also happens to look like not Nandini, right? I did look it up what it was. I don't want to say what it is, but uh, but it, it is interesting. I think it, it, it kind of hooks you into the second part. It's like, why would someone who looks like this mm. and the antagonist of the film want to save... Twins? Maybe. <laughs> I'm like 80%. I can't remember exactly. It's a bit confusing like that, but it's also somewhat related to that flashback with uh, uh, Nandini and uh, Adita. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's not that I don't like the game of like, is Nandini doing good or bad? Because that's not really the game I was talking about. It's more of like a, what's a secret backstory game? And then mm. like, okay, here's a secret backstory. Yeah. And then it, it relays that very much later on after that scene. Yeah. But then there's also like, it, that flashback still leaves questions of like, what is this conflict and how should, did she get there? So like, I think she fell in love yeah, with this enemy king that Adita no, goes in. No, that's not what's happening. No? That's the thing. That's not what's happening. <laughs> Wait. Like, that's what I'm telling you. That's not what's happening. Oh. So like, it's like, that's why it's like the clarity of that scene is, is, it's not giving you enough information. And so like, when I watched the scene, I was so confused. I was like, is this her lover or is this her dad? Or like, is this her brother? Is she secretly like from the other kingdom? You know what I mean? Like, there's all these questions. And then, Adita obviously, like, hates this man. And and at that point, I could have been missing some cues, but I didn't really understand who that man was when I watched it, that he, that Adita kills. Sorry to that man. I was like, I don't know who this person is. That he just (laughs) works. Yeah, so, like, those are the kinds of things where it's like, like, here's a reveal that I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> That's kind of like my, my response is like, I don't know what has been revealed to me. And I don't know whether it's a matter of me not paying enough attention, which is very much possible. But yeah, like, I think that's the kind of thing that like the clarity is missing me. Yeah. I mean, I guess this film overall is kind of like a, it's kind of a slow unraveling, right? Yeah. You don't, you don't really get everything explained to you at once, whether it be through image yeah. or through sound or through dialogue or whatever, right? Everything is kind of a slow unraveling. And I guess it depends on, you know, like your taste and what kind of viewer you are. Like, you know, it makes sense, right? Like if that's not enough that, you know, that she was trying to save the life of the Virapandian king. But to me, I don't know, for me, at least when, when I saw that scene and maybe it's just the filmmaking behind it, right? And, and kind of what it leads you to. I think for me, it makes it more interesting. You know, and I think, again, like Eli said, there's a lot of clarity uh, to what is motivating Nandini and there's clarity, but I also want to know more. Right. I think that's always that's the thing. Like, again, it's a kind of that slow unraveling of giving me a little bit, but then I want to know more. Right. And, you know, and then, you know, again, like a lot of people want those answers and to get to that clarity immediately. But I think personally, I just kind of enjoyed that experience. Mm -hmm. Me too. And I think 
our conversation is going to be wanting to revisit the film. I think I'll probably do that right before PS2 comes out. So then I'm heading into the sequel, ready to tackle it and, and seeing how um, Rutnam finishes everything off. There's always PS2, guys. Yeah, That's true. we'll come back for PS2. And also, Thamai will be joining us for another little mini-series guest spot, possibly on another Indian director like Christopher Nolan. Yes. You know, uh, that is, of course, the Indian filmmaker that I champion the most, Christopher Nolan. Uh, <laughs> really underappreciated. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, I, in a way, I want I wanted to at least say this in the podcast. Take it how you will. PS1 is Money Ratnam's tenant. <laughs> oh that's almost that's all i'm saying <laughs> i don't know if that adds or detracts yeah. <laughs> adds, adds. Tenet innocent. it adds it adds tenant is innocent tenant uh, slaps yeah it's just indian filmmakers recognizing other indian filmmakers and you know we love to see it thank you for listening to this episode of deep cut please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show and be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when our next episode drops. And you can keep up with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. And remember, you can always join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. And as always, thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. And I'm Thanmai. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Yeah!